Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, herbicide resistance is the ability of an individual plant to survive a herbicide application that would kill a normal population of the same species. Resistant weeds can often survive application of herbicide at rates that are much greater than the recommended rate. Farmer Josh Late says there is a new technology available to deal with this growing problem on the farm. He'll explain the seed terminator, how it's being used on his farm, and share the results of some trials. The Ag Transport Coalition is a consortium of agriculture groups focused on measuring the service performance of Canada's rail carriers. QGI Consulting is tasked with compiling this information for the partner groups. Milk Poirier with QGI will share the final results for the 2020-21 crop year and provide some insights for the new crop year. He says less grain to move doesn't necessarily mean what's there will get to ports any quicker. After the break, Josh Laid. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. With me is Josh Laid, a Saskatchewan farmer born and raised in Australia. And last week, uh, Josh talked about herbicide resistance and uh, management strategies on his farm. And today we're going to focus on some of the strategies for controlling herbicide resistant weeds with uh, a piece of equipment called the Seed Terminator harvest seed control. So Josh, let's uh, jump right in and talk about the seed terminator. Yeah, so the seed terminator uh, come out of Australia. It's basically, it's a real simple attachment that just bolts on the back of many late model combines. All it's really doing is it's just collecting the chaff component that's being discharged out of the back of the combine before it hits the chopper. So we're just taking that chaff. We're not taking the straw. So generally the chaff component makes up, say, 20% of the material other than grain. So we're just grabbing that and then putting it through a multi-stage hammer mill and just literally turning it into flour. And that's basically it. It just takes uh, takes about 50 to 70 horsepower off your combine. So it's a little bit of a little bit of power, but that's that's the cost to kill weeds. You know, we need to we got to, we're running a multi-stage hammer mill in the back of our harvester, so that doesn't happen for free. So that's it. Yeah, it's just a simple little attachment. Back of the combine collects the chaff and just pulverizes it into dust. Can you break it down as far as cost-wise, like uh, the cost for this piece of equipment? Yeah, for sure. So generally, yeah, that's how we say it drops your combine by a class. So if you're running a class eight, you're probably back to a class seven. But in all honesty, I find that uh, we're often limited by our sitting capacity and grain loss. So I often don't find it, you know, overloading the combine on a power front. Um, yeah, often it's just based around trying to sieve the grain out is what's slowing us down. So, but yeah, so generally work on it, you know, going to cost you 50 to 70 horsepower worth of power. It uses roughly, I figure around a dollar an acre more fuel. Um, the, it all depends. So the purchase price of these units are in that $100,000 range and everyone freaks out when you say that. But when you actually figure this back to a, per acre cost, 
for us, we're in that roughly 4,000 acres of combine. And in all honesty, we, you know, we're not sucking a lot of dust. We use flex headers. You know, if you, if you eat a lot of dirt, you're going to wear the mills out. But for us, we're not. Um, and we're getting some really good life out of our mill components. So, you know, I've done the numbers on this and on our farm over, you know, paying for these things over five years at a three or four percent interest rate. Honestly, it's in the neighborhood of around six to seven bucks an acre. And, you know, if I often joke that if this if this tool come in a chemical drum and I could just about guarantee you're gonna get, let's just say, fifty to eighty percent of your weeds at harvest time, plus the volunteers, for six to seven bucks an acre, you'd buy it and put your spray in a heartbeat. But, you know, because it's big money on the back of your combine, it, it just doesn't seem to get any traction. But yeah, anyway, so we're in that on our farm, yeah, five to seven bucks an acre. It all depends on how many acres per combine you're kind of running and what sort of conditions you're in. But let's just say anywhere, you know, five to seven bucks an acre. A buck an acre for fuel, you know, a couple of dollars repairs and maintenance, maybe a dollar in just maybe a little bit of reduced half sufficiency and the rest is just in the ownership cost. But then after that time, like these things are built solid, you know, the framework's solid. You're just going to burn out mill components, which you can replace. Belts, just like any combine, you burn out belts on a regular combine. So I feel that, you know, I've been pretty aggressive on the payback and saying it's worth nothing at the end of the day, but there's still going to be some good residual value in there. So, yeah, that, that's, that's everything in, Haley, and I feel like that's pretty reasonable. Now, I understand that you will have seed terminators on all of your combines, so I'm guessing that uh, any of the work that you did last year uh, showed that, that it's working well in your operation? Yeah, so we first started in 2018, and that first year we partnered up with uh, CLC out of Prince Albert and got a little one-acre trial spot going, so on that field there, we actually went to our weediest possible field that we could find and set up this little trial. And since 2018, we've been doing two strips with the seed terminator and two without. And i also like to add there that since the fall of 2018, we have not sprayed a single herbicide on that spot. Really wanted to just see what this seed terminator or harvest weed seed control could do on its own. And you could check the CLC data, but they've got some pretty positive results there on reducing weed populations in such a short time too. Like let's not forget here, this is the weediest patch that I could find on our farm. Huge numbers of soil seed bank. Like it's, it's To me, I didn't think we are going to see any sort of difference in the first couple of years just because of the seed bank, right? And no herbicides. But honestly, when you go and look at it now, you can pick the two strips out where the terminator's gone. Um, so I'm, yeah, just... Absolutely pumped with the way it's working on its own. Um, and also just because we're a 16,000 acre farm and for the last three years we've basically had half the farm being terminated and half not. So we've got strip trials on every single field. And, you know, our field views mapping, which combines which, and you go out there and you can pretty easy to tell where there's a bit of volunteer grade coming and you know which combine that was or where there's a few weeds on a patch here. Then you look over two runs over and think, well, there's half the population there. Why is that? Oh, yeah, that's to see turnover runs. So, 
Yeah, the infield, the infield stuff is is proven as far as I'm concerned. It's been proven in Australia. It's been proven over the world for ten years or more. The issue that I had early days was just how's this thing going to handle our tough conditions. And in the last three years, we've had everything. And this year we'll have a dry one, but this should be pretty easy to run the terminators this year by the looks. But yeah, we've had snow, we've had tough grain, we've had green crops, and it works flawlessly. You know, we're we're getting to a point now where you literally don't know it's running. So I feel like that was probably our big concern was just the just the operation of it. How was it going to go? And uh, that's working well. Field results are showing up well, so it's full steam ahead for us. You were involved in some trials at the Conservation Learning Centre, and I understand it was peas that was on that field. Have you seen any weeds uh, in particular, specific weeds that have escaped the Terminator? Yeah, so things like thistle. It's never, thistle will never be on label for, for the seed Terminator. That's why. There was one of those patches there in the seed terminator run. We had a, basically the only patch of thistle on that site was in there, but we're never going to get thistle just for the fact that it spreads underground for the most part. Um, what else? Like it's any of those weeds that grow pretty low to the ground. Um, so, you know, your foxtails, they're a bit of a concern, but generally they don't compete that well anyway. It's sort of hanging out down low on the crop, but for the most part, getting some pretty good efficacy on the kosher, especially when it's in the crop because it grows more upright and you have more chance of collecting the seeds. It does a great job on, on wild oats as well, you know, apart from they drop their seeds, but they're just staying in their patch, right? But if we can get them in the mill, they're done. They're not being spread. Cleavers are a sitting duck. They sit up high, easy to collect. Uh, good efficacy on mustards. Good efficacy on shepherd's purse. So just picture any weeds on your farm that generally have good seed retention. Most of the seeds are residing at least, you know, five or six inches off the ground. As long as you can get into your combine, the mill technology has proven at weeds the size of kosher, and it doesn't get much smaller than that. So, yeah, it's working pretty well. Josh Lade is a Saskatchewan farmer. He's been talking about herbicide-resistant weeds and a new piece of equipment, the seed terminator, that is used for harvest weed seed control. After the break, Milt Poirier with QGI Consulting will share with us the railway's performance as the 2020-21 crop year wrapped up. Digging into the topics that matter to you. The AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting and he puts together all the statistics for the Ag Transport Coalition. And when we take a look at uh, rail performance for Canadian Pacific and Canadian National Railway. So I guess uh, looking back at the 2020-21 crop year, Milt, uh, how would you view shipper demand? Well, our numbers would say that for ATC shippers, uh, hopper car demand, and I use that term specifically because, as you know, we we don't count in that uh, performance data private car movements, of which, you know, probably 10% or so of the movements on CN are in private car movements, uh, much more notable on CN than they are on CP. But 
from a pure, we're ordering railway supply hopper cars perspective, um, our numbers would say that demand was down about 4% year over year when you look at CN and CP together. Um, for CP, it was up about 3%, for CN down about 9% in broad strokes. So when you think of that in terms of uh, the prior grain year, um, it was interesting because the pattern was kind of flipped, right? Normally you would see a very slow period at the beginning of the grain year and it would ramp up into the peak season in September, October, November, December, and then it would start to tail off in March and into the spring. Uh, the demand coming out of the 2019-20 grain year, or the COVID year as some people call it, um, it never subsided. It just, it stayed strong right through the summer um, of 2020 and right into the new grain year for the 2020-2021 grain year. So demand at the beginning of the year was unusually heavy for the railways and it kind of stayed that way. And then it started to tail off, I guess, probably the middle of March or the latter part of March and then finished um, significantly weaker than it did in 2019-20 and in the last couple of grain years. So slightly different pattern, heavier at the start and, and weaker um, at the back end. So let's uh, flip that now that we know what demand was like. Uh, explain what performance was like. Well, it's it's been interesting, um, to say the least. We, as you know, look at order fulfillment. It's always, you know, the top line story in the reporting that we do, um, and largely because uh, shippers view it as the most effective metric for displaying railway performance from their perspective. Order fulfillment does not necessarily tell you what's going on on the railway or what the problems are that the railways may be incurring, but it pretty consistently gives you a clear picture as to how those issues, whatever they might be, play out. Um, if shippers are not getting the cars that they're ordering and they're not getting them in the, in the timeframes that they want them, that's when performance of the system in its entirety starts to kind of break down. Um, so that's what we focused on and, and we were no different this year. So break it down for us uh, with CP and CN and um, how things rolled out this year and how it compares to previous years. Well, the story is pretty straightforward, actually. Um, CP's is brief. Uh, they were good. They were good all year. They were good week in and week out. They had a couple of stretches where they, you know, struggled a little bit in the winter, but not significant from my perspective. Uh, and they were better than CN week in and week out, basically for 52 weeks. And in a lot of those weeks, it wasn't even close. CN, on the other hand, was a different story, to say the least. Um, the year started poorly for CN, and it kind of stayed there. Uh, August-September period was impacted by crew shortages on CN, so performance suffered for that. On the heels of that, winter came, as it always does, which caused the natural slowdown of the system, which it always does. Having said that, you know, um, compared to past winters, this past winter was actually fairly mild in Western Canada. I mean, it's not that we didn't have cold weather, but we didn't have 
prolonged extreme cold weather. We had a, a nasty snap for about a week or 10 days at the beginning of February, but really it wasn't, uh, it wasn't too bad compared to prior years. The early spring um, really was CN's time to shine. I mean, after struggling mightily uh, since August, uh, when they got into the third quarter, um, you know, April roughly, uh, for about 12 weeks, they were performing very well. Um, the best run they had, you know, in 18 months, frankly, where they were above 90% order fulfillment every week for 12 consecutive weeks. Unfortunately, then we had, um, you know, the outage in southern BC at the end of June. And as we talked about a few minutes ago, CN struggled uh, to recover. And while we think it's behind them, we don't know. And I guess we'll see that in the coming weeks. So if you want to wrap it all up in a really tight package, if you look at the performance for CN and CP on a quarterly basis through the grain year, uh, you can sum it up this way. Out of four quarters um, in the 2021 grain year, CN averaged 80% uh, or better order fulfillment in only one of those four quarters, which was the last quarter when they had that lovely 12-week run of 90% uh, above. Um, CP, on the other hand, was above 80% in all four quarters. And in the last quarter, on a weekly basis, they averaged 98% order fulfillment, which is really remarkable, frankly. I mean, we've been tracking these numbers for the better part of 10 years, and I don't know that we've seen consistent performance like that from either railway. And just as a final point, um, in each quarter, CP outperformed CN uh, by double digits uh, each quarter, which is, again, equally remarkable. It says something about how poorly CN performed as much as it says about how well CP performed. We're already looking at a challenging harvest, dry conditions, um, already uh, crop production numbers have been dropping. So as we look at the start, now we're into the start of the next crop year uh, for 2021-22. Uh, what are you anticipating as far as any major news or stories uh, coming from uh, grain transportation? Well, a couple of points I'll make quickly on that. One is if you look at CN's performance over the last three years, um, this past year, the 2021 rain year, probably the worst in the last three years, which is kind of a disturbing trend, um, frankly, that as, as volume grows, or that has been the case over that time period, the railway's performance has gotten worse. And, you know, the public hears monthly how new movement records are being set and you know it's month after month after month and and that's all good and records are set because there's lots of grain to move but you know volumes are not the sole nor the best measure of performance certainly not from uh, a shipper's perspective and when you look at the metrics that matter um, CN hasn't met the mark now for three straight years and last year's been the worst the one thing I'd say about looking forward and you know my crystal ball is probably not any better than anybody else's. But, um, you know, all indications are that the quality and the quantity of the crop is in flux. Um, and 
that will lead to potentially a couple of things. Um, one would think lower demand would lead to better performance because the railways would have lots of capacity and assets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not necessarily the case. The railways will adjust to demand. So if demand is low, um, the railways will figure out how low they think it is and they'll start parking cars, they'll start uh, releasing train crews and they'll start parking locomotives. So they will look to bring their cost base down as a railway for servicing grain, uh, consistent with what they see uh, the market demand for movement being. Sometimes that doesn't go so well, it causes hiccups in performance. The other thing I think that uh, is often overlooked, but people should think about is when you have such a disparity in quality, it has the potential to um, change the natural flow of grain, if you will. So uh, movement patterns will change because companies will be trying to source grain from places on the prairies to go to Vancouver, to go to Thunder Bay, or to go to Prince Rupert, where normally they may not have just because that's where grain is available this year, if that's the way the crop comes in. So um, performance this year, is a question mark. Um, how the railways will react is a question mark. We already know CN has over 2,000 cars in storage. Um, and then the quality of the crop will also be uh, a factor in how the railways perform because if normal distribution patterns change, it will change how the railways have to service that demand and how well they adapt to that will tell the story. Milt Poirier is with QGI Consulting, and they put together all of the stats for the Ag Transport Coalition on grain transportation. This is the Farm News Roundup for the week of August 16, 2021. The United States Department of Agriculture cut its global wheat production forecast by 2% due to very dry conditions in western Canada, as well as some northern U.S. states and parts of Russia. Marlena Borsch with Mercantile Consulting Venture said overall world wheat production dropped by 15.5 million tons. Borsch says it's bad news for importing countries because lost production is not easily replaced. Western Canadian wheat growers reached out for legal opinions on the issue of grain contracts. President Gunter Johum says the groups heard the concerns expressed by farmers about the administration fees charged by some companies when a contract can't be filled. He said they have spoken to lawyers about those concerns and will make the information available to their members. The group is a member-based organization that does not collect checkoff fees. A national farm group has created a video outlining the priorities for the grain sector during the election campaign. Canadian Grain Growers Chair Andre Harp said the video highlights the support needed to unlock Canada's potential for agriculture with a focus on key areas like business risk management, research funding and breaking down barriers to trade. Harp said what farmers need is a willing partner from the federal government, whoever that might be. Brandt Tractor is acquiring service equipment. The sale is valued at $302 million. Brandt CEO Sean Semple said the addition of service will form three brand new segments at Brandt dedicated to serving agriculture, transportation and material handling industries. Service operates 64 dealerships and handles various equipment, including John Deere Farm Implements and Peterbilt. 
Brandt has over 100 locations in Canada and the U.S. Hail insurance adjusters are looking at more than 327 crop damage claims in the first 10 days of August. The president of Canadian Crop Hail Association, Scott McQueen, said the early August storms caused light to medium damage in central and northern Saskatchewan and Alberta. McQueen said claim numbers might be down this year, but lost payments are up, approaching a 10-year high. A location has been selected for Saskatchewan's newest canola crushing plant. Cargill said the $350 million facility will be built west of Regina at the Global Transportation Hub. Cargill Canada President Jeff Vassert said GTH offers good highway and rail infrastructure and will cause minimal disruption to Regina residents while giving canola farmers easy access for grain deliveries. Construction should begin soon with the plant operational in 2024. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarlane for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Patterson Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.